And uh, please turn in your Bibles back to Hebrews chapter 3, uh, which was page 1202 of the Church Bibles. And inside your service sheet you'll find an outline as well of uh, where we're heading as we look at that passage together. But before we begin, I'm going to ask uh, God for his help uh, to prepare our hearts to hear his word. So let's do that together. Heavenly Father, you tell us in your word that in these last days the love of men will grow cold. We pray that that not be so for us tonight. We pray that as you speak by your spirit that you would do the opposite, that you would set our hearts on fire for you, that you would give us a soft heart before you, a heart that is moulded by your word and your ways and your son, And we pray that you would put on our hearts the desire to see that happen to those around us as well. And so, Father, we do pray that through your word that you would build us up tonight. Amen. Well, there is a moment uh, of a Sunday evening that I have grown to cherish. After the busyness of a weekend, whatever the weekend has involved, Uh, for instance, this weekend it was a a joyful wedding yesterday, uh, Ross Graham and Emma Park, or Emma Graham now. Uh, an equally uh, joyful Sunday that's been filled with gathering as uh, God's family together. There comes the moment. And it happens as I wander back down Brookhouse Hill, heading home, past the village shops, around the corner and in the door, home, rest, at last. I love my job. I love every aspect of my job, I love my weekends, I love what this weekend has involved, but there does come a moment on a Sunday night where my life's ambition becomes very simple and uh, very straightforward, Uh, that is to go home and to rest. Now I'm sure many of you know that feeling, that ambition too, uh, at different points in your week, the longing to be home, to be at rest. Well, Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 that we look at tonight presents us with a very similar life ambition but on a much grander scale. Hebrews 3 and 4 tells us that your life's ambition as a Christian is to make it home to God. That's your goal. A home that's been opened to you because of the glorious death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. A home that has become your home. That happened the day you came to Jesus in repentance and faith and since then it has been your home where you are heading. Your life's ambition is to make it there, not fall short. Make it all the way to your father's throne, to the place where uh, from the very beginning of time you were created to live, to the place where there is no more decay or disease or death or mourning or pain, to the place where you will be face to face with your God the God who made you, the God who loves you, where you'll see him, where you'll enjoy the depths of the beauty of his creation and you will marvel at how majestic he really is. That's your life's ambition. You know, the word the Bible uses for that place and the experience of being there again and again is one word, rest. Your life's ambition is very simple and straightforward. Hebrews 4.11 shows it to you. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. Every effort. Every effort to get to the place that Hebrews 4 verse 10 tells us is where we will rest from all our work, just as our God has done, where we will be home with him. 
a home which Paul tells us in Philippians is better by far. Your goal in this life is to not fall short of that rest, to make it all the way, all the way to the point where you get to lay your burden down before him and have him say, come in and rest. And the wonderful boast for Christians is that you can know with complete confidence that you are going home, that you are his, that you will make it there, all the way there to his home, which is now your home. Now, while that's your life's ambition and while it's a certain one for those who trust the Lord Jesus, we need to see in these chapters that we are travelling home, we are on that path with a very significant handicap. One that tonight I want us to see clearly so that we can deal with it together, so that we can ensure that no one here falls short of that rest. The handicap... Well, you hopefully heard it. It was repeated again and again in our two chapters so that we didn't miss it. The writer of the Hebrews didn't want us to to miss the huge handicap we have, an unbelieving heart. A heart that as time goes on and as our journey home goes on grows harder and harder because of the deceit of sin in our heart. The writer uh, says it again and again because he wants us to see just how serious a problem this is for us. At the very start of our passage, he he shows us that this isn't a new problem. It's not a problem for us here in the 21st century. It's always been the problem for God's people. He gives us uh, in the early verses uh, from verse 7 onwards uh, the example of the Israelites in the wilderness heading home to the promised land, heading to their rest with their God. And as they heard their God's voice, they responded again and again with hard-hearted unbelief. The writer tells us for 40 years they saw God's grace at work in their lives. 40 years. And for every single one of those 40 years they responded with this hard-hearted unbelief because of the deceit of sin in their hearts. And if you look at chapter 3 verse 11 you will see how their story ends. The story of this wilderness generation ends with God's declaration they shall never enter my rest. Our handicap on the road to rest is a heart that grows hard towards God's voice, a voice that calls us home. And Hebrews tells us this danger because it wants us to realise it is still a real and present one for us. Because this this hard heart is caused by a disease that is actually latent in us all. Have a look at chapter 3 verse 13 and there you see it. See to it brothers that none of you has a sinful unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. You see, the big problem with the disease of sin's deceit that hardens our heart is you don't catch it from someone else. This is no swine flu that you can make precautions, put a bubble around yourself and you'll be fine. You can't avoid contamination. It's in you. It's in your heart. This is how Jesus puts it in Matthew 15. He says, Out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander, the lot. You can clean up your act all you like, but if your heart is diseased, you've changed nothing. Truth is, as the prophet Jeremiah put it, the heart is deceitful above all things. You see our problem? Right at the core of who we are is a disease. Sin, 
waging war on our heart every day, trying to deceive us, trying to have us turn away, we see in this passage, from the living God. And so tonight, for a few moments, I want us to be honest with each other about the battle we face, to see how seriously sin can deceive our hearts, to see on how many different fronts it wages war against us. And so you can see on the outline a number of the fronts I think that this heart, this deceitful, sinful heart wages war against us. The first thing it deceives me about is sin itself. My sinful heart tells me that my sin is not that big a deal. After all, sin is everywhere, isn't it? And my sins aren't particularly notorious anyway. Sin helps us get used to sin. It just becomes part of who we are. It's part of my makeup. It's, it's part of the way I'm wired up. I, I mention my sin eventually no more than I mention my earlobe or, or my middle toe. It's just who I am. I end up in the words of Cornelius Plantinga mumbling about my sin at best, whispering. My sinful heart tells me my sin is no big deal. But more than that, it starts to deceive me into thinking that I have my sin under control. My heart downplays just how enslaved I am to sin. But if we stop the deceit just for a moment, we realise how ensnared we are by sin each and every day. Whether it be the lies that we tell at work to, to save face, whether it be the pride that drives the way we relate to our families, or whether it be the lust that draws us back again and again and again. And then the deceit from sin's deceit in our heart goes a step further. Not only denying the extent of sin in my life, not only denying my lack of control, but then denying the damage my sin causes. The damage it does to me. The damage it does to my relationships. I was reading an article this week, a, a harrowing article about the, the effects of adultery. And it says that very often our, our hearts fly to the aggrieved partner, but it says the real damage, the long-lasting damage, more often than not, is to the children. Our sin is like a wrecking ball. Damages us, damages those we love and most importantly it damages my relationship to God and my deceitful heart tells me that's okay. It's okay to offend a holy God which is as big a lie as it could tell us. So firstly it deceives me about my sin but then if that won't work it, it tries the opposite trick. If it can't uh, downplay the extent of my sin it, it will raise it up and it will deceive me about the extent of God's grace. When I sin, my heart will tell me there's no way back from this sin. It'll tell me uh, the, the way uh, the human relationships work, the economy of all human relationships, which is unforgiveness and ungrace. I remember uh, when I was uh, in Sydney, there was a, a, a key political uh, leader in New South Wales who was on the up and up. They thought he'd be the next uh, Premier of New South Wales. Everything pointed to that. He, he, he just had this free run in. Nothing could possibly beat him in the next election. And then on one night, after uh, enjoying himself perhaps too much at a party, he made a, uh, a, a stupid remark about the wife of the then Premier and it caused a great fall. 
And I remember very clearly uh, the next day the, the Premier saying, look, I can, I can perhaps forget what he said, but there is no forgiveness here. You cannot say that sort of thing. But where do you go when there's no forgiveness? But where do you go when there's no way back from the mistake you've made? Well, he went to his parliamentary office and he tried to kill himself. Where do you go when there is not enough grace left for forgiveness of your sin? My sinful heart can deceive me that God's grace is not big enough to bring me back from this one. You see, but God's grace is bigger than our deceitful heart. Grace says there is a way back. And not just to forgiveness, but to a new life that can please God. But my deceitful heart will try to deceive me about that. Not only that, when, when those tricks don't work, it will try to deceive me that my God is not good to me. When I look at the circumstances of my life and my heart grows discontent, uh, when I feel God has not been good enough to give me the things that I really need, or I look at the circumstances of my life and my heart just grows dismayed, when I feel God has not protected me and those I love as he should have, I get to the point where the circumstances of my life harden my heart so much to God that I will no longer listen when the psalmist tells me that the God who loves me never slumbers or sleeps in his care for me. Or I won't listen now when Romans declares that God works for the good of those who love him. And I won't listen when God's word tells me again and again that this place you are in right now, the one you call home, is not home at all. It's not the good place that God has prepared for you, so stop expecting it to be. then my sinful heart will deny God's ways are good for me. My heart hardens to his commands, commands that are are meant to lead me to flourish in life. Well, my deceitful heart will tell me, no, that's not the case. Those commands will restrict you, restrict your relationships, restrict your career ambitions. Or his ways uh, seem retrograde. When it comes to the way I raise my children, when it comes to the way you love your husband, And his word can't possibly grapple with the complex ethical issues we face, can it? Well, my heart will tell me his ways are risky, that he asks too much of me, too much financially, too much time, too much of my relationships. When he tells me who I should love, when he tells me how to respond to hurt, he asks too much. You know what the outcome of all of this deceit within our heart is? It ever hardens me towards my good God and it denies me the rest my heart so badly needs. And ours is a world full of restless hearts. That's the great victory sin's deceit wins. It leaves us empty. And the harder your heart is to God and the word of his grace, the more restless you will be because God grants rest to those he loves. Now we've just scratched the surface of the deceit within our heart but do you see the extent of the problem we have? And here's the worst of it. Jeremiah 17:9 again says this, the heart is deceitful above all things. And then it says this, and beyond cure. In this series we're looking at the spiritual diseases that can beset 
Christians and here we have one that Jeremiah tells us is beyond cure. There is no doctor here and there are many. There are no doctors here who have the skill to cure this problem in your heart. You have a big problem. The organ that gives life to your whole body is rent through with an incurable disease. But here's where the gospel is amazing. One of my favourite verses in the whole Bible, 1 John 3.20, worth uh, memorising. If you're wanting a verse to memorise, 1 John 3.20. God is greater than our hearts. He's bigger than them. He's stronger than them. And so here in this passage, our God, our, our heart surgeon, applies the only cure there is to these things. Two things he gives us as a cure. Two simple things. He says, if you want to overcome a sinful, unbelieving heart, here's how you have to do it. Firstly, you need to fear unbelief. And then you need to encourage each other. Simple, aren't they? Firstly, have a look at chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. See this fear, this right fear we are to have of unbelief. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, Be careful, or more literally, be fearful of unbelief. That will cause you to fall short of God's rest. Our great fear should be that we would follow in the pattern of Israel. The pattern that uh, chapter 4 verse 2 tells us that they heard the gospel again and again and again. But that word kept falling fallow in their lives because it was not met with faith. We had to fear the unbelief that is latent in our hearts. Fear being deceived about our sin. Fear being deceived about God's grace, about his goodness, about his ways, about the rest he promises And please be sure as you read Hebrews here that the writer is not advocating the Christian life where we are forever fearful of being lost. Far from it. Christ has saved us, in fact, Hebrews says, to be fearless, even of death. But that fearlessness comes from a sure trust in his promises. And so there is only one thing we are to fear and that is fearing unbelief in those promises. The wonderful thing about a fear like that is it doesn't, like so many of our fears, paralyse us. It does the opposite. It should stir us into clear action to the second cure that God gives us. So simple, encourage one another. Have a look at Hebrews 3.13. But encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And again, he says the same thing in chapter 4, verse 11. He says, Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following the example of disobedience. How do we cure a deceitful, unbelieving heart? We make every effort to fight against it, to battle against the hardening of our hearts towards our God. And do you see in in verse 13 of chapter 3 the extent of this fight? We are to fight such that none have hardened hearts before God. Or 4.11, no one falls short of God's rest. What's an acceptable attrition rate uh, for this community? None. Not one. God's cure for the deceitfulness of sin that wages war on our hearts is to tell us to make every effort to fight for each other's hearts. Now let me pause here for a moment and let us take this in. Because I suspect that this all sounds a bit over the top, isn't it? This, this call to battle, this call to fight, this mighty fight together. 
Because if you're like me, uh, my life doesn't feel much like an epic battle. Sometimes I wish it did. I, I, I love the epic war movies, the, the great war heroes, the, the Braveheart, the gladiator figure, Crocodile Dundee. <laughs> you notice all the great heroes have Australian accents? Isn't that great? Every time I see one of these movies, I come out and I go, yes, I'm ready. But then I go back to a life that is far from an epic battle. I sit at a desk and write stuff, or I have a meeting and I drink some tea. I change some nappies, I make porridge, I hoover the carpet, hardly the stuff of a warrior. And yet that is exactly what Hebrews 3.13 calls me to, to spare no effort in this battle because it is all around me. Actually, it's inside of me. Hebrews says you must make every effort, you must come up with whatever defence is needed, whatever attack is needed to guard your faith and the faith of those around you. You are to see that no one falls. Now, if all of that does sound over the top like some sort of Hollywood drama to you, I put it to you that you have never been close enough to someone who has fallen on the way. These words are written because an entire generation fell dead in the desert. These words are written because there are far too many casualties amongst us. It's one of the great sadnesses of my Christian life thus far to see people fall on the way. I remember the first uh, church I was a part of while I was at Bible college. I, I met a guy there by the name of Martin. Amazing guy in many ways. Keen Christian, servant hearted, wise the whole time I was there, he was having an affair with another woman who he then accidentally got pregnant. This after struggling for many years with his own wife to have a child. He walked away from her, from the other woman and from his unborn child and from Christ. I remember speaking to him after all of this and his only reason for it was, I just got tired of fighting. I remember a friend at school, Simon, who was in my year at school but seemed to be worlds ahead of me when it came to the Christian life. So mature, so well thought out. And I remember going on a camping trip with him in our last year of school and there he was wandering down this this river that that we were walking through together. And he said to me, that's it, I'm done. And he was. There's four guys in my year at Bible college who have already been removed from ministry for various serious failures. Two would regard themselves as Christians still. There are too many casualties. You look around this room tonight, there are hundreds of us. Stats say we won't all make it. I suspect for many of us, the reaction to news like that is to say, I hope it's not me. I'm going to make every effort to make sure I reach that rest. Well, that's a good reaction. But Hebrews pushes you to have another one alongside it to say, I hope it is no one else either and I'm going to make every effort to ensure it is no one around me. You want to see God's kind provision of protection for your heart? They're all around you. The encouragement of one another. You see, making it to the end, reaching God's rest is a community project. It is something this whole church family enters into together as one We are to make every effort to see that no one is left behind. 
And so you and I need to meet the challenge of Hebrews 3.13 to have it be more than just a wishful thinking thing in our church family, more than just a slogan that we put in our welcome pack. We must make deliberate plans to gather together for the purpose of encouraging one another to enter God's rest. We need to make the, the habit of meeting together a priority for us because if we won't, how else will we encourage each other? How else will we hold fast to our faith? And these meetings that we have, they, they need to be realistically sized enough so that we can genuinely face-to-face encourage one another. And like a broken record, I'm going to say it again, that is why small groups are so important for our church. That is where we gather like that, meeting face-to-face to encourage each other to hold firm. And one of the great excitements for me in recent weeks is to see so many sign up for groups Starting in September, we're we're closing in on 600 people, which is very encouraging. But Hebrews says no one gets left behind, so we have some work to do. Let me say small groups are not an interesting extra for you as part of this church family. They are survival 101. And do you see in chapter 3 verse 13 how often we're meant to meet together like this? Daily. Daily. We are to encourage each other daily. You thought the move to weekly groups was scary. (laughs) Just wait till we move to daily. Now, there are no such plans for that, but what we do see here is the uh, seriousness of meeting regularly. Hebrews tells us that that as the, the return of Christ gets closer, we are to meet more and more often to encourage each other. Because Hebrews also warns that the other habit we can get into, and it is a habit, is not meeting together. Not meeting with other Christians to be encouraged. There is real danger for us in fearing the loss of time or comfort that comes from gathering regularly like this. Fearing that more than fearing unbelief. And not just yours, but the unbelief of those around you. The I'm all right, Jack approach to life does not work here. And there is also the danger in overestimating our own strength to think, I don't need that sort of encouragement, I'm okay. To do that is to underestimate how prone to wander your heart really is. So let us make every effort to encourage one another daily because sin's deceit in our life works at us daily. You see, if I'm honest, I cannot afford to take my eyes off my heart and I cannot afford to let you take it off my heart either. Because sin's ability to deceive, to to blind, is directed first and foremost at me. Left to myself, I cannot see my own heart clearly. I'm like the emperor's new clothes. I'm my own cheer squad. I keep telling myself, gee, you're doing well. Or I tell myself the opposite. You're a total failure. There's no way back. The last thing I need around me is yes men or yes women who will just agree with me. I need those who will encourage me, who will tell me the truth about my heart. And so do you. Brothers and sisters, encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that no one of you may be hardened by sins to see. And just as we close, let me finish by allowing Hebrews 4 to show us how we are to encourage each other when we meet like this. Because that's part of God's provision too. Not only does he give me a brother to encourage me, he gives that brother a word to speak to me. 
You see, God's ultimate cure for a hard heart is for my brother to hold up the mirror of God's word to me and show my heart for what it is. In God's word, we have a most powerful instrument for encouraging one another to enter that rest. Have a look at verse 12 of chapter 4. See the words your brother or sister speaks into your heart. A word that is alive, that is active. A word so sharp and incisive that it goes all the way through my bluster, all the way through my pretense and my doubts and my guilt and my sin and my excuses, right through to my heart. And chapter 4 verse 13 tells me when it reaches my heart, it blows it open before God and his word performs open heart surgery on my disease riddled heart. And so when I gather with my brothers and sisters, that's the word I need to hear from them. And this is how German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it. He said, if somebody asks, where is your salvation, your righteousness? He can never point to himself. He points to the word of God in Jesus Christ. He is alert as possible to that word because he daily hungers and thirsts for the confidence it gives him. But God has put that word into the mouth of men in order that it may be communicated to others. When one person is struck by the word, he speaks it to others. God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother, in the mouth of a man. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to them. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself he cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother man as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. The Christ in his own heart is weak, weaker than the Christ in his brother's heart. His own heart is uncertain, his brother's is sure. Now what we are doing here at this very moment is part of that. Preaching the word is the foundation of this encouragement in our church family but it should lead to encouragement amongst one another. It should lead to bands of men and women gathering together in homes, in halls, in coffee shops, wherever to encourage each other in light of the real and present danger of sin's deceit. I need the encouragement of that word from those I do life with and so do you. To have those I do life with encourage me with a word that 4 verse 14 tells me is all about Jesus who knows how weak my heart really is, who alone has overcome all the temptations and deceits that assail my heart, who is king of my heart and is merciful and gracious and able to help me in my time of need, which is, of course, daily. And so, brothers and sisters, behold God's powerfully good cure for your unbelieving heart. Let us encourage one another with a word about Jesus about his grace. That's how we battle unbelief. We take one another to Jesus and we find in him the help we need. Let us make every effort to do that for one another. Let's pray. And Father God, we read uh, these words in Hebrews 3 and 4. We read of the wilderness generation and we see the real dangers 
But Father, we also see your wonderful provision in your word and in each other. Father, give us a longing to see no one of us left behind. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.